to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. He's been spending time talking to Latino lawmakers and community activists about how they plan to increase voter engagement among Latino Oklahomans. Lionel, what's the deal? Latinos are the second largest and the fastest growing demographic group in Oklahoma. They also register and vote the least compared to every other racial and ethnic group in the state. Now, there are some lawmakers, namely Senator Michael Brooks, Senator Jessica Garvin, Representative Annie Menz, and Representative Arturo Alonso Sandoval, who contend that the best way to get more Latinos to vote is to give them someone to vote for that they know and relate with, someone who understands their language, ideally, you know their culture, their needs, and their priorities, someone who, who is Latino. When you say Latinos register and vote the least, how bad is the disparity compared to other demographics? It's important to say that we're talking about participation as a proportion to the total number of voting age citizens in a given demographic, right? So the breakdown for the 2022 midterms, for example, uh, there were 244,000 voting age citizens who were Latinos. 44% of them registered to vote and 52% of those who registered actually voted. Now, if you look at black Oklahomans, for example, uh, 172,000 voting age citizens, 45% of them registered, and 59% of them voted. And for Asians, 72,000 voting age citizens, 47% of them registered, and 67% of them voted. So Latinos didn't vote the least numerically, but as a, as a, you know, a fraction of their total population, the second largest demographic in the state, they had the least amount of engagement. Why is participation uh, so low among Latinos then? Uh, a big factor is apathy towards elections, uh, and that stems from a variety of factors. You know, a lot of them prioritize work and school over voting. Schedules don't really line up. People don't get off of work. And putting food on the table is just more important in the immediate sense. Uh, there's a kind of a distrust of gov government institutions especially among Latinos who are newer to the country and more recent and are ne recently uh, naturalized citizens. You know, they come from places where voting doesn't have that much impact in, in as far as, you know, helping them improve their lives. And then a lack of civic education, how to register, you know, who can register party indecision, not knowing where they, where they align and, and, and who they align with as far as, you know, their, uh, ideals and, and policy decisions, and also where to vote. People um, tend to, because they're preoccupied with daily life, tend not to kind of plan ahead for this kind of thing. What does uh, low voter registration and turnout mean for Latino representation? Well, there are four Latino legislators in the state uh, whose names I, I mentioned earlier. They are the... Um, members of the Latino Legislative Caucus, and all but one of them are in the Norman or OKC area. That Senator Jessica Garvin is from Duncan. You know, there's one Oklahoma City Public School Board member, Juan Lecona. He's uh, District 6. 
And there are a few other elected officials in places like Diamond, where there's a high Latino population. Uh, in Clinton, they have one city council member. And Tulsa, you know, folks sprinkled about. But pretty much anywhere a Latino has been elected into office in Oklahoma, they don't represent the proportion of Latinos in that place. So how do Latino lawmakers hope to increase the number of elected Latinos if the Latinos aren't voting? You know, members of the Oklahoma Latino Legislative Caucus are forming a political action committee in the coming days or weeks, and it's going to have two parts. You know, the first, the 501c3 nonprofit, it's going to be providing scholarships and fellowships for young Latinos who are interested in politics so they can get their education and then, you know, be mentored to run for office. And then there's going to be another, a 501c4, that is going to help people register to vote, you know, tell them why it's important. And it's also going to provide campaign volunteer opportunities to get people involved in the political process. And importantly, financial support to candidates who want to run who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford to file or, you know, print ads and bulletins and things like that. All right. Now, you mentioned that uh, we'd expect to see the PAC uh, form officially uh, sometime in the very near future. Uh, But who are the newest Latino candidates and what are they running for? Yeah, there are three Latino candidates right now. The first one is Sam Morgan Grimaldo. He's a Southside Oklahoma City native. He's running for Senate District 46. Uh, Current senator in that seat is uh, Senator Kate Floyd, and she's not going to run for re-election. And and then there are two for Oklahoma City Public School Boards. Jessica Emily Cifuentes, she's running for District 3 for the school board, and Scotty Hernandez, uh, who's running for District 4. And if, if you notice, most of these folks are in Oklahoma City right now, and, you know, speaking to Senator... Michael Brooks, who's largely a mentor to a lot of these folks, um, he said that with this political action committee, the goal is to expand across the state, to be able to to help people across the state run for office and actually represent their communities. And so what are the consequences here? What happens if Latinos don't register or turn out to vote uh, the way the folks involved in forming this pack are hoping they will? There are two main consequences to Latinos not voting that I've kind of been hearing from from these legislators, from community members. Uh, first, you know, a small number of Latinos in elected office equals to a small chance for Latino interests to be considered when laws and policies are written and passed and voted on at, at the at the Capitol. Uh, and the second is, you know, I mentioned earlier, Latinos are the fastest growing population in the state right now. And if more Latinos are not compelled to register to vote and the population continues to grow at the rate that it is, which is 42% increase over the past 10 years from the 2010 census to the 2020 census, then the gap between potential voters and those who actually end up casting a ballot is going to get wider and representation is going to be further diluted. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read all of Lionel's coverage of the formation of this new PAC and their intentions His story is on our website at oklahomawatch.org. Reporter Paul Monies has an update on where the money is going from the state's settlement from lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. Paul, how much money is out there? 
Well, this, this is a lot of money. Uh, it's about $700 million, but that's not coming all at once. That's from lots of settlements, and it's going to be paid over many years, about 18 years for some of them. Uh, but right now, the state has about $27 million from the Opioid Abatement Board, and then there's another $37 million that this, the legislature has access to that they've set up a separate settlement fund for them. And how has the state decided they're going to spend that money? Yeah, so the settlements kind of call out for some of this uh, this putting the money out uh, in, in different ways to kind of help treatment and recovery programs and also uh, for opioid abuse education uh, and other programs and preventions. Uh, so that's kind of the main thing that, that the state is looking for. And this is all stemming from uh, the several years of crisis that the state has faced with opioid addiction and deaths. Now, why has it taken so long to get this money out to cities and counties? Well, partly this is because there's so many manufacturers, retailers, distributors involved, lots of different settlements, lots of different timelines on these legal settlements. So that, that has caused some of the delays, but also the current AG, Gettner Drummer, Drummond, has said that he has not been happy with his predecessors, and um, it's taken some time for this board to kind of get going. Uh, they've also been compounded by some turnover because they were not really doing much at all. So they had some board members kind of turn over in the last year or so as well. Now, there was some controversy around the state's first big settlement with an opioid manufacturer, wasn't there? That's right. Yeah. Back in 2019, um, the state settled with Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Um, they were one of the biggest and original uh, manufacturers of opioids. Um, the state got basically a $207 million settlement. Um, and then Attorney General Mike Hunter basically decided how that should be distributed across the state. Uh most of it went to the Oklahoma City University's National Center for Wellness and Recovery, uh, which has treatment and research there. Uh, about $200 million of that settlement went to that center for OSU. Uh, about $12 million is going to cities and counties for abatement programs that they have. And then another $60 million went to outside attorneys that helped with the case and the settlement talks. Now, lawmakers uh, did not like the way that was kind of carved up without their input. Uh, and so they said the next rounds of settlements that we do we're going to create a fund and have the legislature be involved in distributing that money. What happened to uh, the money from the Johnson & Johnson trial? That uh, got a lot of press. That was a, a big amount. Where's the money? That was That's right. That was a several-day uh, trial back in the summer of 2019. Uh, that actually was a state one that on, at the trial and uh, basically had the judge that said it was $465 million judgment uh, for the state. Uh, that was appealed, obviously, by the, the company, um, and it was overturned by the Oklahoma Supreme Court on appeal. So the state doesn't get any money of that $465 million first settlement judgment. Now, uh, much like uh, the tobacco settlement, uh, not identical, but similarly, a lot of states were involved in suing the opioid manufacturers, marketers, and distributors. Uh, how are other states spending their settlement money? Yeah, so the latest tracking has about $52 billion coming to states over the next 18 or so years from all these various settlements. Um, there has been some controversy. Some states have gotten a little quicker start than Oklahoma in getting money out the door, but they've also been criticized because some of her are just spending it basically on law enforcement uh, for equipment and stuff like that, which people are thinking, well, that's not really some of the, the, the parts that we thought this set of money would go to. So other states who kind of um, have done that already have gotten criticism. So I think Oklahoma is aware of that. And in fact, when I talked to the attorney general, he said that, look, that's part of it, but this is not what our main focus is from Oklahoma. Uh, we're going to 
focused on the cities and counties and the treatment options and helping for people who are still struggling with these, these uh, opioid addictions. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can uh, read Paul's coverage of the opioid settlements and all his other work related to state government in Oklahoma. You'll find it on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. His latest story examined proposed rule changes that would add hurdles to Oklahoma's commutation application process. Keaton, could you explain uh, what commutation is designed to do? It's designed to correct uh, an excessive or unjust sentence is, is the language that's used. Uh, so someone, a prisoner can file an application with the board that says, you know, maybe they were sentenced harshly based on the, the sentencing range of their crime or there was um, evidence or, or something that has, has come forward now that uh, is, is mitigating that sort of thing. Um, so it's it's designed to to provide relief if, if someone claims that their sentence was excessive and the board approves a, an application that that goes to the governor for a final decision. Well, how often are those commutation requests granted? It's pretty rare. Um, even if an application, you know, there might be several hundred applications of those, maybe 15 or 20 go to a hearing before the board and, and out of those, maybe three or four uh, are approved. So it, it's it. And that's just an example, but it's a pretty um rigid process and you know you have to uh, work pretty hard on your application and showing that you know you've used your time in, in prison well that sort of thing haven't gotten into trouble behind bars uh, so it's uh, generally pretty rare of course there was you might recall back in 2019 there was a mass commutation of, of hundreds of people based on sentencing range changing for uh, some drug and property crimes but generally uh, it's it's pretty rare. Now, who is eligible for commutation under the current rules? Uh, basically, anyone is eligible, but if you submit an application and it's denied, you're required to wait at least three years before submitting another application. All right. And what kind of changes are the uh, Pardon and Parole Board recommending? So the the proposed changes are it would limit applications to uh, an offender who's the, there would be four criteria. One would be uh, the sentencing range for your crime has changed. So that would be like the, through the legislature, um, you know, if, if the offense, you were sentenced for a crime that carried a sentence of four to 10 years and that's been reduced to two to five years, you would have a claim for commutation. Um, so the sentencing range changing, um, if you're serving a sentence without a release date and you've been inside at least 30 years um, or you have a favorable recommendation from the governor or a trial official is the language that's used. That could be uh, the district attorney that oversaw your case or a judge, that sort of thing. Now, why do the board members uh, say they need to make those changes? Uh, so what I was told uh, by the board's executive director is that there were some members who feel like uh, with with they're getting too many applications that don't have merit or um, the, the example I was used was someone who's been sentenced to life in prison filing for commutation months after they've arrived in prison. 
that sort of thing um, that that may be on <laughs> a certain side of the the scale there. But uh, yeah, just the volume of applications and also some who feel like they're concerned they might be overruling a, a judge's decision or a jury's decision that was valid under the law. Um, so And also some concerns about, uh, you know, some in the legal community feeling like there hasn't been enough transparency in the process, that sort of thing. All right. Now, you spoke with uh, two commutation recipients uh, for the story. What did they have to say about those proposed rule changes? Yeah. So I spoke with with two re- recipients. Uh, they were le- released. One was released in January of this year, the other in August. Um, and they told me that uh, if these changes go forward and they're implemented as currently written, of course, it could be tweaked between when we're talking and, and when they're ultimately voted on and implemented. But they told me that uh, it would basically remove a motivator for a lot of people who are incarcerated to do well. Um, you know, these were folks that were very active in, in programs and volunteering, um, trying to make the most, you know, taking whatever education courses are available, not getting into trouble. Um and they told me part of that motivation to, you know, keep clean was the fact that if you go forward for commutation and you get a misconduct or um, questions come up about you not being involved in programs like that can really jeopardize your chances. Um, so the explanation I got was basically that it would it would remove a motivator for a lot of people and um, kind of chip away at, at some of the reform uh, progress they feel that we've made in recent years. Now, uh, there'll be a public hearing on the proposed changes January 8th. Uh, For those who might be interested or have an opinion about the rule changes, how can they provide feedback to the board members? That meeting, yeah, that meeting will be at 9 a.m. at the Oklahoma Healthcare Authority Building in Oklahoma City on January 8th. Uh, If you show up in person, you'll be allowed uh, three minutes to speak if you sign up at the door before 9.15 I believe, uh, and the board is also accepting written and and email comment uh, ahead of that hearing date uh, coming up here in about three or four weeks. All right. Do we know when those rules would take effect if if they pass those? So after that public hearing, there would be another board vote, and then that would have to go through uh, the legislature to get final approval. So it possibly later in 2024, uh, I guess, as far as an exact timeline, still, still a bit unsure there. Um, but it could be a, a matter of months. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, you can read Keaton's coverage of the proposed commutation rule changes, as well as all his work related to criminal justice and democracy on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to Keaton's weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Well, friends, it's that time of year. November and December is our big fundraising push at Oklahoma Watch. 
We are a 501c3 nonprofit independent news organization that brings you investigative and explanatory reports from all over Oklahoma. And in November and December, we have an opportunity to triple any donations that come our way. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar, and this year we're delighted to say the Arnall Foundation here in Oklahoma is doing the same thing. So any donations at all, every dollar we get in turns into $3, which helps ensure our success in 2024 so we can keep bringing you all that in great investigative work. If you'd like to donate and support the cause, if you enjoy the podcast, our website, our newsletters, our radio pieces, please visit our website, oklahomawatch.org. Click on the Support Us tab on the menu and know that every dollar you are able to give is going to be tripled. That's also true if you make a year-long pledge. If you pledge $10 a month, that counts as $120 toward the matching gifts. So your $10 a month turns into $360. Multiply that out any way that makes sense to you. We rely on the support of our readers and listeners and greatly appreciate your help. Thanks for listening. Newsmatch runs through December 31st. We greatly appreciate every bit of support.